0: copy of God's Word this morning to 1st John, the letter of 1st John. It is almost in the back of your Bible, in the back of the New Testament, just before the book of Revelation. 1st John, we will be in 1st John chapter 3 this morning, verses 11 to 18. As you turn there, many of you I know are fans or participate in sports, and if you've been around or involved in sports very much, you know that there there are times in which teams simply need to be reminded of something they perhaps already know, whether that's something that that the coach would come before them and and say, listen, you know you should be doing this, but you're not doing this, let's get back to doing what we should be doing, right? Um, I would say that as Big Blue fans, many of you out here, you're probably saying, yeah, we know, right? We know exactly what you're saying. For some, at times, the coach comes in and they've met some adversity, they've met some challenges, or things are going well, and the coach understands that it could be easy to kind of divert from the course, and the message is more along the lines of stay the course. Continue in doing what got us here, right? Don't depart from that. Keep on pressing on with what you know you should be doing. In, in either instance, a strategic timeout or, or a strategic practice where the coach relays this message can make all the difference of a season being successful, being turned around, or one that the wheels fall off and just never recovers. I think both of these ideas are true of us here at Grace. When we come to a passage like 1 John 3, 11, 18, as we look at this passage this week before we jump back into Matthew next week, We want to take a moment and think about what John writes here as a clear evidence of those who are followers of Christ and that being love for one another. And I know that for many of us gathered here today, it's really a a very simple reminder. It's kind of that message of stay the course. Keep on pressing on and doing that. You're, You're doing it well. You have a genuine love for the body of Christ. So press on in that. Keep on. Don't let up. Keep loving one another well. And for others, it it may be one of those things that that the Lord uses his word this morning and says, listen, you need to be reminded of this. You need to be reminded that an evidence of you being a true believer, a true follower of Christ, is love for one another. And you've kind of fallen away on that. Now come back and love one another well. Do what you know should be done. So we turn our attention then to 1 John chapter 3 this morning, reminded of this very basic truth. John, John writes as an older man. He's writing probably somewhere around 85 to 90 A.D., towards the end of the first century. And he's writing, you'll note sometimes if you just read 1 John, you'll see. Now, uh, if you just look in 2 verse uh, 28 and then we'll, part of the, what we'll have in 3.18, he refers to the believers as little children, you have the, the picture, is, is said that John, perhaps for you know, historians think that it's kind of that picture of, of John as an older man confined to a chair and, and writing with, with those gathered around listening to him and looking out to them as a, as a grandparent or as an older saint saying, little children, let me remind you of these truths. Let me remind you of what God's called you to do. In 1 John 5.13, he tells us that he writes this letter so that the people might know that they have eternal life, that they might know that they are children of the King of Kings, that they can call God Father. And he's writing them in the midst of a day in which he's seeking to give assurance of salvation because there are some who were departing from the faith Others who are proclaiming heretical teachings, they're proclaiming things that are not true, not consistent with the teachings of the Lord, with the teachings of Scripture. Really, it's a a letter that is very relevant for our day. As we see similar things occurring where many quote-unquote preachers would stand and, and preach and teach things that are contrary to Scripture, abusing Scripture, not consistent with orthodox biblical beliefs and truths. Or we see many where this this kind of wave of popularity of deconstructing the faith, where we step away from the faith and and people are applauded for deconstructing their faith. And it leaves many stepping back, shaking their heads and, and wondering and question, what is going on? What does that mean? How could that person do that? How could they say that? Is that true? Is this true? And John writes this letter here to provide assurance. And he writes that you might know that you have eternal life. And so through the letter, John gives multiple assurances or evidences of you being a believer, what it looks like to be a believer. And this morning, we will look at the one in which he says that the love for the brothers is evidence of being a Christian. Now, I I believe this is important for us today for four reasons, four reasons that it is relevant in our lives to consider this today. The, the first one simply as way of introduction is that we are prone to doubts and we need assurance that we're saved. Many, many are, are just prone to doubts. Perhaps you're here today and you, you struggle with doubting your salvation. If that's the case, I pray that, that, that this passage of scripture would be an encouragement to your soul this morning, that you'd be encouraged that, that there are others who doubt. You know, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation is overtaking you But what is common to man, the the fact that you might come and and have doubts or questions or struggles, that does not make you some, some abnormal Christian. I would say at some point in all of our lives of faith, in all of our lives as believers, we experience and go through periods of doubting. I know I have at times. But in those times, I look to the word and I would encourage you to look less to doubt as a mark of unbelief and look more to what God's word gives us as marks of belief, okay? So look to God's word. What does God's word say? Here is evidence that you are a believer, that you are a child of God. The second reason that this is very relevant to us is that our sinful nature constantly leads us away from the body of Christ. There's this kind of constant pull away So when sin comes into our lives, we find it very easy and we can often be quick to withdraw from the family of God rather than draw near to them. And that's an interesting thing, isn't it? That we should be those who deeply, faithfully love one another. We're committed to one another. We want the good of one another. We are to love one another with brotherly affection, it says. But it's so easy that when sin comes into our lives, instead of drawing near to those who say, I love you, I've made a covenant commitment with you, I'm committed to your good and your growth in God, that when sin comes into our lives, it's so easy to allow the shame of sin to cause us to isolate ourselves and to draw back. We can be very easily prone to wonder in those moments. Thus, the calling of your pastors to shepherd and draw you back in constantly is something that we work diligently at. The third reason this is relevant is that the world celebrates individualism and self-love at the expense of others. The, the whole idea of, of sacrificing your own wants and needs for the sake of others is really being lost in our culture. Now, I, I wouldn't say that in, in these big moments of, like, of heroism where you see somebody really just sacrifice something for the, the life of another. In those big moments, we still, as a culture, we still come around and we applaud those moments, don't we? We see those and it's all over the news, this act of heroism, right? But where we see that being lost is just in the everyday life, kind of that mundane life, just the day-to-day living. Where we are called to make sacrifices for the good of others. So often in just everyday living, we see instead choices made for what's good for me, what's in my best interest rather than the interest of others. Another reason this is relevant is that Satan seeks to pull believers away from the family of God that they might be devoured. The straggler is the one who is in the most danger. We see that in nature and we see it in our spiritual lives. Have you ever noted how often it happens that one who's kind of the straggler, or one who steps aside is the one who is so quickly embraced and drawn in to those who are contrary to the Word of God, those who are living in sin, those who would live opposed to the Lord? Do you think that's an accident? Do you think that's a coincidence? We need to open our eyes and understand this is indeed spiritual warfare, that Satan is looking for one to devour just as we see, the straggler in nature is the one that's devoured. The straggler in the family of God is the one who is often attacked. And finally, number five, I told you there are four. I've already lied to you today. There are five. Misunderstanding runs rampant. Misunderstanding runs rampant of what the church is. This text, as we come to today, we think about the people of God and the function of the church is important because it is easy in our day to misunderstand what the church is. we, We live in a day in which it is perhaps the easiest in history to go to church while never engaging with the church. Church is typically perceived as just something we attend or something we join rather than who we are. We live in a day in which it's often more convenient to watch church than it is to actually engage with the church in the messiness of life, in the difficulties of life, in working through sin and working through the ups and downs, the trials of life. So we need to hear this morning the reminder of the importance of loving one another as the people of God. Let's hear from God's word this morning, First John chapter three, beginning in verse eleven. little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And we begin this text, verse 11 ties us back to what he had just written. The four connects us to what he has said there in verse 10. John has has just spent chapter 3, 1 through 10, talking about the importance of, of living and practicing righteousness rather than habitually practicing sin but that the believer is one who lives for and practices righteousness and he says for this is the message you have heard from the beginning what is this message right he says whoever does not practice righteousness in verse 10 is not of god nor here's his transition nor is the one who does not love his brother and then he says for this is the message you have heard from the beginning so it's connecting. It's this idea that he's transitioned now into talking about the importance of our love for the brothers. Here's the, the big picture theme. Has already been stated, but make sure you hear it. This is the big picture theme we need for today is true believers have a particular love for God's people. We have a particular, a special, committed love for the people of God. In John 13, 35, we meditated on it before the sermon. But we read, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So it's not just evidence that the the love we have for one another is not only evidence of salvation for the individual believer. It's also evidence that we as a whole are the people of God. It bears testimony. Our love for one another bears testimony to the world that we are God's people. Now, you might remember, John wrote the Gospel of John, right? He heard that teaching. He heard the Lord teach that, that you are to have a special love for one another, that we are to love one another as he loved us, and the world will know that we are his by our love for one another. So John heard that. Now he, he recorded it in his Gospel, and now he is fleshing it out as evidence of salvation as he writes this letter. John 3, 11 to 18 also holds in it as, as you just kind of know. We'll look at the passage. But as you go through the passage, you probably noted this idea of a contrast between Cain and Christ that you see there in that text. There's a comparison of the two. Cain is an example of a failure to love your brother. Cain represents or exemplifies selfishness, envy, anger, sin, and death. On the other hand, Christ exemplifies sacrifice, love, righteousness, in life. And so we'll see this contrast throughout these verses. What I want us to do is look at three truths that we learn here in 1 John 3, three eleven to 18 this morning. Three truths. The first one is found in verse 11 and 12. The calling to love one another is not a new calling. This is not something new. The calling to love one another is not a new calling. John writes, for this is the message." That you have heard from the beginning. And what he's referring to is the beginning of Christ's teachings, right? In John 13:34, that's what we, we just talked about. we just meditated on it. Jesus said, "A new command, I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you." Right. So he gives this command. So when John writes this letter, it's been approximately 60 years that they have heard this teaching, that they know this teaching. This isn't something that John writes and it's the first time they've heard it. And they go, whoa, really? We should love one another. That's crazy. No. When he writes this, they have heard this teaching for 60 some odd years. You trace that back. We talked about this a couple years ago, I guess, in a sermon. I'm sure you really remember that. Um, But several years back, we talked about in Leviticus 19.18, where we had the precedent set where in Leviticus, the law said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus affirms this in Matthew 22, 37 to 39. He says this is one of the two great commandments, right? The the greatest commandment is that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says the, the law hangs upon both of these, on these commandments, right? And so we know that Jesus affirmed that, but he taught that it is the particular love for one another that should mark believers, And his exhibit A when he speaks of this is Cain. Cain is offered forth as his first witness. You can take a look back at at Genesis 4, 3 through 8 and see the testimony, the life of Cain and what happened when Cain kills his brother Abel. He does so out of of anger. And that anger manifests itself in hatred, jealousy that leads to murder. Here's the, the bottom line when we think about Cain is that we see Cain and we see his failure to love his brother Abel. What we understand, what we learn in that passage, is that this failure to love began in his heart and it worked its way out into his actions. Okay? So a failure to love begins in the heart and it works its way out into our actions. That's important because we need to understand that the posture of our hearts dictates the actions of our hands and feet. We see this in Cain, the posture of his heart, the condition of his heart led to the act of killing his brother. We see it in Christ that the posture of his heart leads to what? Leads to sacrificing himself on behalf of his people, that they might be saved. So we see it in Cain, we see it in Christ, two radically different examples of it. And if we look in the mirror, we'll see it in ourselves that the state of our heart, the condition of our heart will drive the actions of our lives. And so if that's the case, then we want to ask, how do we develop a deeper love for God's people in our heart? How do we cultivate this deeper love and a deeper commitment, a deeper concern for God's people? How do I grow in my love for you? How do you grow in your love for one another? How does this section love this section more and that section love that section more? Some of you are sitting on the wrong side of the sanctuary this morning. Maybe that's an act of love. You know who you are. I see you shaking your heads, right? Have to go through our figuring out who's who now. How do we grow? How do we grow in our love for one another? Well, John 15, listen to John 15, 12 to 17. You can turn there if you want or you just listen. But in John 15, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says this, is what we're hearing this morning. This is my commandment. That you love one another as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask in the Father, in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command to you, so that you will love one another. So the the commandment that he begins with, what is the commandment? That you would love one another. Who's the example that he puts forth? Himself. Jesus is our example. And then we get to verse 17. He says, these things I command you, what? So that why? What's the purpose? Why does he command these things that we would love one another? Now, if we go, well, what things, Lord? What things? What are you talking about? When your study today or later on this week, when you go back and review, back up and read John fifteen one to eleven. What is it? What things has he commanded that would issue forth in us loving one another? What he's commanded is that we abide in him, that we abide in Christ, that we dwell with him, we draw near to him. He's saved us that we might bear much fruit, and it is by abiding in him that we bear much fruit. And specifically, here, the fruit at hand is loving one another. He says, I have commanded you to do this, that you might be fruitful, specifically that you might love one another, that you would love one another. There would be a deep and a rich and abiding love for the people of God in you. Where is that rooted? It's rooted in abiding in Christ. If you want to grow in your love for one another, grow in your relationship with Christ. The second truth we see from this passage is in verse 13 to 15. The second truth Loving one another is evidence of salvation. It's evidence, so it's, the call to loving one another is nothing new, right? In fact, verse or the second point, loving one another is evidence of salvation. In verse fourteen, he says, "We know, we know that we have passed out of life into or out of death into life because we love the brothers." So we we know this. How do we know it? Because we love the brothers. This, this is important the, the because there is not uh, the basis for it. It's not the, the grounds for us being saved. It is proof or evidence of being saved. So he's not saying there in verse 13, he's not saying, listen, we, we know this because we do this. Like, you can know that you're saved because you do this. Like, if you do this, you earn salvation. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, you know you're a believer because of this evidence. You see it, and the fruit of belief, the fruit of being a true believer of God, is the fact that you have a genuine and a deep and abiding love for his people. That should be present. If it's not present, it's a big red flag waving in your face saying, hey, you need to look in the mirror. You need to examine your heart. You need to ask God to search and try and know your heart. So love for one another is evidence of true belief. It is evidence that you are a follower of Christ. So if you're here today and you are struggling with doubt and and you sometimes struggle with, with, am I a believer? I I would just encourage you to ask a few questions. Ask ask yourself, "Do do I love and care for the people of God? Is there, is there something different in the way I care for God's people? There's this particular love, This, as soon as I find someone as a Christian, there's just this connection, this, this concern for them. I have this genuine love for them. And ask yourself, do, do I want to be near them? Do I have a desire to come and gather with God's people, to be with God's people? Do, do I want to serve God's people? Do I want to minister to them, strengthen them, see them grow in godliness? Do I want to see their lives glorify God more? Do I want to see them in a spiritually healthy place? Do I desire to fellowship with the body? Do I miss it when I'm I'm not there? I simply just miss being with God's people. Do I long to fellowship with God's people? Ask yourself those questions. We have here again the, the contrast between Cain and Christ this contrast that the world follows the example of Cain. He says um, in verse 13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Why? Because that's following the path of Cain, that the world would hate you. We've been warned of that by by Jesus. Jesus warns us of that in John 15, verse 18 and 19, and John 16, pretty much the whole chapter, and then in John 17, chapter or verse 14, when he's praying. He warns us that the the world will hate us. It will not think well of us, right? He says, listen, don't, don't be surprised that the world hates you. But you need to know the contrast. That may be the example of Cain, hatred, but the example of Christ is love. So we shouldn't be surprised that the world hates us, but we should be surprised. We should even be shocked if there is hatred in the midst of the people of God. If there is a time where we come in and among the people of God there is disdain for one another there's backbiting there's fighting there's hatred between believers that should shock us we should step back and go what in the world something is wrong something is awry something's not right something is off it should shock us because there is no space for hatred among the people of God it should not be there now look at what noting this is This is a beautiful statement from John. Look at verse 14. Look what love for our brothers helps us know. It's important. Verse 14, we know what? That we have passed out of death. We have passed out of death into life. We've passed out of death into life. The present situation of the believer is, has changed. If you're a child of God, you have passed out of death into life. John makes this beautiful statement, declaration of the gospel here that there is new life in Christ. This is the, the doctrine of regeneration, that, that the old has gone, the new has come, that we have been made alive in Christ. It's a great truth that we have to understand. There is a marked change in the believer. What what does it mean to be saved? What What does it look like? It's to be given life. It's to be given life. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, we read, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There's change. Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 5, we read God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead, were dead, in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And then we read later in Colossians 2.13, Paul writes, he says, and you who were dead, were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. There is a marked change. The situation of the believer has gone from life or from death to life. And our love for the brother helps us to know that. He says, Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life. This is a, I think, a somber statement in verse 15. This is a statement that I would beg that you not just gloss over today. When he says that everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. If there is a hatred for your brother and sister in Christ, who's supposed to be your brother and sister in Christ, John is pretty blunt here. He said there's no life in you. The life of Christ isn't in you. If the life of Christ is in you, there is a love for His people in you. It's there. It's present. We may not all be best friends. I may irritate you. I may rub you wrong. If I don't, I guarantee there's someone in the room that does. Right? It just is. But even in the midst of that, as the people of God... We love each other. There's love in us because there's life in us. John is very blunt here. We cannot take it lightly. If there's no love in you, you may like the preaching at Grace. You may like the programs. You may like the building. You may give your tithes. You may come and you may sing your songs and enjoy them. But if you do not love God's people, it is glaring evidence that there is no life of Christ in you. We need to know that. There is a marked change in the believer who has gone from death, he's passed from death to life. You're not being made alive. You have been made alive as a follower of God. have to know that this morning. Becoming a Christian is to be made alive. No longer walking in darkness, no longer walking in darkness, but walking in light and life and righteousness. No longer living for your own sinful pleasures, but living for the good of others, the good of the body of Christ, and the glory of God. Now, his evidence there is what? Love for the brothers. You remember Galatians 5.22, the, the fruit of the Spirit, right? The evidence of God's work in your life. What does God manifests in your life, what is the very first one? Love. At the primary, heading the list is love. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, he thinks about the three virtues, faith, hope, and love, and of these, which one abides? Love. We can't underestimate the love that we are to have for God's people. I appreciated what John Stott wrote on this. He said, eternal life is evidenced, not only in a general love for all humankind but in a particular love for our brothers and sisters in Christ the authentic followers of Jesus Christ who have passed from death to life hunger for Christian fellowship they do not give up meeting together hebrews 10:25 but delight to worship and pray together and to talk together on spiritual topics while their personal relationships with each other are marked by unselfish and caring love. Does that describe you? Does that describe me? Like, can I read that and go, praise the Lord? I see the fruit of God's work in my life. So I have a genuine love for your people, Lord. Thank you. Would that be your response? The third truth we see from First John three is that loving one another is visible. It's visible. Verse 16 to 18, loving one another is visible. We see that in verse 18 is kind of the the key statement. He says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. When it comes to loving the people of God, we need to understand that love is not idle, it is not theoretical. Love is visible. When it comes to love, talk is cheap. If I just say that I love you, but I never demonstrate it, it's never visible, are you really going to think I love you? Have you had that? You've had those relationships, haven't you? You know what that looks like. Oh, I love you, I care for you, and there's no evidence of it. Well, you don't write home and go, "Ah, this person loves me deeply. You wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't believe how poetic they are in saying it. It's amazing. No, you say, you may say you love me, but you sure don't show it. You see, just as James wrote, remember James 2, 14 to 26, where James writes that genuine faith, genuine faith issues forth in works is evidenced. Here we see that genuine love issues forth in works. It issues forth in deeds and action. In, in verse 16, what do we see? Verse 16 that By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Jesus' sacrificial work on the cross is how we know and understand what genuine love is. We know love because he laid down his life for us. We read Jesus saying in John 10, 18, he says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord." And I have the authority to take it up again. We, we read later, John fifteen thirteen. Jesus says, greater love has no other or no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, it would be one thing for Jesus to say those things and be done and move on. And we think, wow, what a, what a great statement of love. But we have the benefit and the blessing of looking back and knowing that Jesus did not just say he loved us. He demonstrated it. He did not just say, hey, greater love has no no one than this, that you lay down your life for others. And we didn't just hear Jesus say, hey, man, I would die for you. I would die for you. If it ever came to it, I would do it. No, we had the demonstration that he truly did it. We read Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's a demonstration of his love. Love drove Christ to action. It wasn't just theoretical. It wasn't just talk. It was something that he did. He loved us and he died for us. If you want to know genuine love, You live in a world today, you're here and you're an unbeliever and you go, yeah, I'd love to know what real love is. I've been abused by people. I've been burnt by people. I've been lied to all my life. I've been taken. I've been cheated. All those things. I can't trust anyone. Well, look to the cross. Look to the cross. Christ has not cheated you. He has not lied to you. He He hasn't just given you a bunch of cheap talk and nice words and poetic things to say. Christ went to the cross and he died on your behalf as a demonstration of God's deep, rich, abiding, steadfast love for his people. Turn to Christ. Repent of your sins and trust Christ today. He loves you. He loves you. His love was demonstrated on the cross. But not only was his love demonstrated on the cross, not only does that Lead us to worship Him, like it, it should lead us. When we we think about it being demonstrated, and we think about it being seen and visible by us, we don't just sit back and go, "Wow, that's impressive." Now let's sing worship songs. We do that. It should it should lead us to worship Him, right? It should be great cause for rejoicing. It drives so much of what we sing. There is one gospel. There is one message of good news. What is it? That Christ died for us? Oh, we held the power of Jesus' name. Why? Because Jesus is the exalted, risen Savior who died for us. So it drives our worship. It drives our worship to see that God demonstrated his own love for us and that he died on the cross for us while we were yet sinners. It calls us, it beckons us, it draws us to worship. But you know what else it should do? It should spur us on to loving one another well. It's should spur us on to say, Christ did that for me. I'm going to love you well. That's what he says in verse 16. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us. And this is a big and. I circled this in my Bible. You might star it, you might underline it. I don't know what you do. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We ought to lay down our lives for others. I don't, I don't know, I, I can't imagine that John's necessarily writing this thinking, you know what, um, Jesus died for us, you need to go die for him, and you die for him, you, like physically, literally saying you go die for them just like Jesus did. I, I, would, I would say it's more what we talked about a few moments ago that John is saying, listen, he sacrificed for us, he set aside his own pleasure, his own convenience, his own life for the sake of us. Surely to goodness, we can sacrifice our own pleasures and desires and wants for others. So lay down your life for the brothers. There's no room for selfishness. No room for selfishness among the people of God. And listen to what he says. We ought to lay down our lives. John doesn't say, listen, you should do this. Just you guys over there, I, I don't really need to do that. You do it. I've, I've done my time, like I've gone through some tough stuff. Now you go love the people. He says, we, all of us. There's no one gathered in this sanctuary today who could say, you know what, this isn't for me. I, I'm a Christian, but I just kind of come in and go, and I don't need to really love God's people. No, we ought to lay down our lives for one another. We should do it. There is no room for selfishness among the family of God. We should lay down our lives for one another. So the question lingers then do I readily sacrifice for others, or do I only act on my own behalf? Ask yourself that question Do I readily sacrifice for others? What, what, what kind of sacrifices are you making for the people seated in, seated in this sanctuary? The people who can't leave their home because they're shut-ins. People who are going through difficult times of sickness, suffering. I'm not necessarily about, or asking about these, the big moments. I'm not necessarily asking about... The moments of tragedy where everybody swoops in, there's this great rush, right? I'm asking about those just kind of day to day decisions. Do we function with a sphere of sacrifice towards one another? That we're willing to sacrifice our own agendas, our own desires, our own pleasures in the little decisions, the, the little actions, the little words? Of everyday living. See, true love is visible love. It's observable. We see it. We know it because people do it. I know you love me because of the way you treat me and the things you do in my life. So what does that look like? Let me just quickly, as we close, let me just quickly give you four ways. If, if love is visible, if love is... Visual is something we see. How is it displayed then in the simple, mundane days of life? Here, just very quickly, just rattle these off. One, speaking truth. Speaking truth is a way that we show love to one another. First Corinthians thirteen six says, love rejoices with the truth. In Ephesians 4, 15, we read that speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, who is Christ. So there's speaking truth God's truth, speaking God's word into the lives of others. Teach it, counsel it, pray it, share it, discuss it. Speak truth to one another. It's a way to show love. Be truthful, be honest with one another. Second way, is ministry, just serving one another. That, that we would actively seek to serve one another, that we would genuinely care for each other, that we would see a need and we're not waiting to go, well, golly. You know, Mark. Mark's struggling with that. I just hope one of the pastors can take care of it. You know, or wow, Mark could really use you know some encouragement. I hope somebody tells me to do it. Why would you do that? If I see Mark struggling, Mark in need, then just go meet that need, minister to him, care for him, show genuine servanthood, servant nature, minister to one another. The third thing is sacrifice. We've talked about it a good bit today that you would truly put others before yourself. Whose preference rules? Am I just about my own preferences? Is the best seat mine? Right? I mean, we're all Baptists. That means everybody fails in from the back. Right? Is it just about our preferences? Sacrificial love. And here's the fourth one: is presence. Presence. You cannot show love to the people of God without being with the people of God. It's very difficult. I, I know that. I know that there are circumstances that people are physically prevented. That there are people who are either watching right now on Facebook or they'll watch it later in the week, a recording that we take who are shut in. They can't physically come and be a part of the body of Christ. And that's not of their own desire. That's not of their own volition, their own choice. It is the situation that you find yourself in. And we understand that. We know that. We get that. But if one is making a volitional choice to not gather with the people of God due to convenience or preference or laziness or, or just a habit, that is not a demonstration of God's love towards the people of God. I, I can't say, I love you guys. I love you, but I'm just never with you. It doesn't, it doesn't jive. I know it sure wouldn't jive in my house. <laughs> Steph, I love you. Where are you? You never come home. Oh, I love you. <laughs> I really love you, hon. She would laugh me right out the driveway. It doesn't work here either. But what that means practically is that some of you listening to this sermon on Facebook need to resume in-person gathering. That a habit from that was developed perhaps a couple years ago needs to be cut needs to be changed. It it means that some of you who are listening right now on Facebook, you listen from cities all around the nation. And I'm appreciative of that. I'm thankful that, as we would understand, you hear good, sound biblical teaching. But you need to be engaged in a local body of believers. And I would encourage you to stop just sitting and watching us every Sunday and find a local church to engage with that teaches the biblical gospel, that exalts the Lord Jesus and exists for the glory of God. And if you can't find that in your area, then call us in our church office and we'll do everything we can to help you find that. If you want to watch us later on in the week, go ahead. But don't use watching us online as a supplement for gathering with God's people where you show love for God's people, please, please don't do that. And then some of you, being present means that when we finish in a few moments, you don't race out the door. Like there are there's some, and I love you, but you come in right at the moment, we sing, we hear a sermon, and boom, out the door. It's like a race. Restaurants are open all day. promise. Some of you need to simply engage with God's people. And this is corporate gathering. Slow down. Talk to one family. Ask someone how they're doing. How can you pray for them? Let's demonstrate love for one another by being present with one another. That's... My hope and prayer out of this is that as we move forward in 2023, that we would continue to be a church with a deep and a rich and abiding love for one another. That would just be something we're known for, that people would say, hey, grace is a body of believers who love God deeply, and they love one another fervently. They love one another. Jesus calls the church his bride. He calls the people of God his bride. Let us then highly value our Lord and Savior's bride, the church. Let us love his bride well. Jesus gave his life for the church. He he died for the church. Let us never find it too difficult to live our lives for the good of the church. He gave his for us. Jesus is the head of the body. He's the head of the church. Let, Let us never be so foolish as to carry out our faith apart from the head. That we would just be apart from the rest of the body. this one limb over here by itself. There's no life there. Jesus demonstrated his love for the church by sacrificing himself. Let us then posture ourselves towards sacrificing our own lives for the sake of the church. Jesus prized the church. Jesus loved the church. Jesus loves the church. He's the risen, reigning king who is interceding on our behalf. So when we think about Jesus' love for the church, it's not just past. It is going on now. He loves the church. May we do nothing less than prize and love the church, the people of God. I'm not talking about a building. I'm talking about the people sitting across the aisle, down the row, in front of you, behind you, or that aren't here today for whatever reason. I'm talking about loving the people of God as an outworking of God's work in our lives. This morning, our response to God's Word is going to be responsibly reading our church covenant. I have it on the screen and I'll kind of guide us through it. As a church, our covenant is based on the fact that we love one another. It's a commitment, a love commitment to one another that, that we would look and I would say that because I love you as a fellow member of the household of faith, that this is what I'm committing to you. I'm covenanting this towards you and you are covenanting it with me. And so I want to invite you to stand. We're going to sing this together, or sing. We're not going to sing it. Um, Whew, that would be bad. I saw Scott and got motivated, I guess.